Hello, and welcome to Your Story Matters podcast. My name is Michaela Elizabeth, and I'm very excited that you're here. I am an Enneagram coach, avid crafter, bookstore wanderer, tea lover, and cake enthusiast. My hope for this podcast is that we will experience the power of storytelling and understand that we are the main characters in our own stories in order to break free from the false narrative that's been playing in our minds. I'll share from my life and I'll chat with friends about theirs on a variety of topics like relationships, Negram, seasons of life, and more. Your story matters, my story matters, and I'll continue to tell both. Today on the podcast is my guest, Carla Ann Ferguson. Carla Ann is a dynamic author and speaker, mom, wife, grandma, and coach. People who know her well consider her an idea machine and a passionate protector for those she cares for, as she cares for a lot of people. In the last few years, she's had over 35 people living in her home at various times. She takes care of adults with intellectual disabilities, often those who also struggle with addictions and legal issues. They live with her full-time in her home. Carla Ann has worked in various careers, from teaching music, to directing a nonprofit to the automotive industry. But in all her roles, whether paid, volunteer, or as an employee or the business owner, her drive is to protect and serve those she is working with and for. Carla Ann enjoys a challenge and gets a little stir-crazy when things are too routine for too long. Deep conversations, theological debates, and hearty laughter bring her to life, and me as well. She has been a challenger her whole life, and being an Enneagram 8 woman has provided her with the difficulties in the workplace and a unique perspective on leadership. While she loves others with a deep and passionate love, many are intimidated by her eightness and choose not to see her softer side. Those who have embraced her dynamic personality have found her to be a powerhouse of both love, capacity, and possibility. On the personal side of things, Carla Ann has four adult children, three in-laws, two adult stepchildren, and six grandchildren. She and her husband recently celebrated their first wedding anniversary and are genuinely enjoying married life and all the challenges and the beauty it brings. They are currently stewarding an end-of-life journey together and are grateful for each day since her husband has already exceeded his cancer prognosis. They are living in faith, trusting God to give them peace, whatever the future holds. And just a quick note before we jump into our conversation, I do want to let you know that we discuss suicide very briefly in diving into Carla Ann's story. So if that is a sensitive topic for you, I wanted to let you know before we begin this conversation. And here we go. Carla Ann, welcome to Your Story Matters podcast. I am thrilled and excited to talk to you, my very first type eight, um, for our spring series. So thank you so much for being here. I am very excited to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Oh my gosh, anytime, anytime. So I would love to get started by hearing just a little bit about you. What is your story? Gracious, my story is long and convoluted. So how do you, I don't even know where to start. 
Um, when I think about myself as a type eight, I didn't know I was a type eight until I was in my forties. And um, the way that started was my, my girls, my daughters and daughters-in-law were in uh, a group, a mom's group, and they were learning about the Enneagram. And I was like, what is that? That's interesting because I was always trained in DISC and Myers-Briggs. So I was very familiar with personality. So like, what do you mean there's a personality thing I haven't heard of? So that was interesting. And when I look back on my life, I can see the type eight so vividly, but I actually wondered like it, like the eight felt like it fit, but my behavior, which I know it's motivation-based, uh, my behavior matched a type five. And so my, in my childhood, I was like, I'm, I'm an eight, but I'm an introvert which is unusual for some people. They might think, oh, eights are all extroverts. No, 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 I'm an introvert at eight. And so as a child, I was like, the way my upbringing was, I was alone, I was permitted away, I was reading, I was studying, I loved research. And so if you would look at me as a child, I would have, I would have said, oh, I was a five. And I felt probably very five-ish, just in that needing to hoard my resources and do my research. and. But that challenger piece was like really strong in me from young. And it came out a lot in my faith. I would read something in the Bible and then I'd question it and challenge it. Is that really true? How is this happening? Why don't I see that anymore? And um, something really interesting happened when I was 12. I wanted to be baptized in my church. And uh, I went through, I did the catechism. It was catechism in those days. And uh, I did it all. And then uh, I went to the moment where now I want to be baptized and the board of deacons said no. Oh my gosh. And I was like, this is not okay. And they said, well, we don't baptize people that are not 13. You have to be at least 13. Well, that got me going. Oh, geez. Put me on a little horse and <laughs> let me say my piece. And I was like, so I did so much more research and so much more study. And I and I came to the conclusion at a very young age that they are wrong. This leadership group of this church is wrong. And um, so that was all fine and good. Then came the year I was 13. I went back through. This time they didn't. It was a new pastor would come into the church. And they did uh, a book. They studied a book called This We Believe, which is about Menno Simons. I was attending a Mennonite church at the time. And so we studied this book called This We Believe. And it came time to get baptized. And I knew I was a shoe in because I was 13. And um, so I filled out my form just so that I could get a meeting with with the elders, so the, the deacons, I guess they were called deacons at that church. And I get there and they're like, so why do you want to be baptized? And I'm like, I do not want to be baptized. And for your information, I am never coming back to this church again because <laughs> this is what happened last year. This is what happened this year. And when I am going to get baptized, I'm going to do it for all the right reasons and not because you said I could. And I'm getting baptized into my Christian faith, not into this mental Simons business. So I'm not doing this. And then I got on my bike and I rode home. And uh, <laughs> I had not discussed this with my parents because I had it all figured out. And this is where my type eight really began to show. And so when I got home, it never had dawned on me that my parents might've gotten a phone call. <laughs> and so my parents were on the porch and they're like, what have you done? Oh my goodness. And, uh, 
And so I defended myself. And as uh, I like, you know, as an eight, I was strong in my in my like I was willing to take on the challenge. I'm willing to take on this deacon board at the age of 13 and a girl, no less. I'm going to do this because this is what's right. And uh, I know what I'm standing for. I've done my my type five research in my room. I know what I'm standing for. And so, um, so yeah, that was the beginning of me actually exerting my eight. Um, I didn't know about the Enneagram then, but when I go back and I look, oh, that's where I really started to bring out that eight. And then from there, it went into different leadership roles in the school and, and eventually in another church. And um, and yeah, so I, when I finally figured out that I am an eight, I'm like, oh, my life makes sense. Yes. Yes, that is the pivotal sentence that everyone says once they look back. Because again, hindsight, if we only knew then what we knew now, probably the trajectory of our lives would be very different. So there's obviously a very real reason why we haven't learned it until later in life. But going back, same thing about me with the four. I'm like, the childhood, everything they say about uh, a four being a kid. I'm like, oh my goodness, that was me. So I felt seen in that moment and known, Mm -hmm. as I'm sure you have as well, of like, oh my goodness, I wasn't crazy. I wasn't too much. This was me. This was me all along. And so you kind of come to a moment of uh, peace with yourself, I would imagine, of like, this makes sense and I'm okay with this because I've lived with myself in my personality. Now I just know a little bit more about the ins and outs that I didn't have language for back then. Exactly. And I think what it helped me understand actually is the other people around me how they didn't understand me and how I felt so misunderstood so much of my life. I was too big, too much, too loud, too everything. And um, uh, intimidating. People would say to me, I'm intimidating. I'm like, really? Like, how am I intimidating? Like, I'm just coming in here to love and serve and protect. I mean, I'm my own little police force because I'm an eight. Right. Other people are intimidating. I'm like, what? How is that possible? So understanding also the other numbers so that I could see, oh, that's why they find me intimidating or that's why this is so much. And and I did, I struggled with being a woman that's strong, that has high capacity, that is energy, that thinks quickly, that has vision and determination and drive. And um, when you're, uh, for, so for many years, I was working in a, a typically, stereotypically male industry. And that's just not really well welcome. It's mm. not welcome there. And, and neither is it welcome in the church often either. Nope. Yeah. Not really. So when you looked at the other types, learning what the other types and how they saw you, was it the intensity, the boldness, just the I have a vision and let me tell you what it is? because it is for the good of everyone, um, for everyone that you are loving and serving and taking care of. Did you get any insight as far as what what was intimidating, if there was anything that they could kind of pinpoint? I think it probably depends a little bit on the type, um, but I think the intensity, like the way I ask questions and the way I answer so honestly, like uh, I, I'll tell you, I'm try, I try to be super tactful, what I realized with some people is that those topics aren't even open for discussion because that feels too much. Yeah. And so for me as a type eight, there is no topic that's, that's like not allowed. It's all on the table and it's okay. Um, but that isn't the same for everyone. So learning that 
what feels like joy and energy to me is intensity and intimidation for someone else. Mm. And that's really had to settle itself in my heart. I've had to slow down, slow down for uh, different types for people that I love dearly. And I just never understood that I'm just at a different pace uh, that they are. Or maybe it's my time, my time orientation. I'm always thinking about the future. I'm headed forward and going fast. Being able to slow down and come to the present or with my type fours, sit and think a little bit about the past. You know, those are hard, hard exercises for me, but I have learned that they're necessary for relationship. Yeah. The truth is though, as an eight, I didn't see relationships as important Mm. for a long time in my life. Mm. And so that was a very necessary shift I had to make. It was easy for me to see that relationships were a byproduct of whatever else I was doing, but not the goal. And so when I learned how to tap into my love for people and, and choosing to love people, I'm realizing I can harness this eightness for people. Um, that began to change things in my world and changing my motivation, my willingness and eagerness to slow down, to become more vulnerable, to stay in the moment, to think about the past. All of that comes out of my desire to love people, which I did love people before, but I didn't love them first. I love them after, Hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. With eights, one of the core weaknesses is vulnerability. So I can only imagine that it's like, I'm just doing what I have to do to kind of survive and and thrive and get on to whatever the future has for me. And so when you think about relationships, second, was it a case of being afraid of that vulnerability? And again, that fear of being betrayed, like sharing, well, again, with an eight, nothing's off topic or off limit, but that interesting mix of being vulnerable yet being betrayed, but also I want to love really well. And like, just that fear of how is everything going to be received because people come back to me with the word intense. So like, how, how did the vulnerability help grow in the coming to the point of relationships where, Hey, I can, I can love first and we can do this first instead of later. That's a good question. And I think that a lot of that, the answers, like the words that you're putting here, um, like vulnerability, though I didn't have words for this at that time. Now I do because I know my Instagram type and I know my weaknesses. I would say that I didn't realize vulnerability was even important. I didn't realize vulnerability was uh, like an aspect of relationships. Uh, vulnerability is weakness. Mm. And so I, and I didn't, I wouldn't have said I want, I, it was because I want, I didn't want to be betrayed or I didn't want to be controlled. At that time, I didn't have a length for that. Uh, what I would say more is I didn't necessarily see the need for relationship. Mm-hmm. And so why bother with vulnerability if, if I don't need the relationship? Mm-hmm. And so the need for relationship is what drove me to realize I need to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. That's good. So there was a very pivotal moment in my life when that happened. I uh, I was a young adult and I was um, I was in college. I was getting my degree, and I had been 
uh, I was a music major, so I was, I was supposed to be doing my my big my big uh, exam, a big performance, you know, my big debut. And uh, just before all this happened, I was in a car accident. Mm. And in that car accident, they told me I might never walk again. I would never have children, and I was in exceeding amount of pain. And uh, so I was in the hospital for a while, and they had me on a very strong pain medication. I was in there for several weeks. When they sent me home, uh, they sent me home with Tylenol. There was no coming off of this medication. So I had no idea that A, I was like super addicted to this medication. Um, but I also went home having no idea how to handle the pain, the loss losses that I would invariably have to grieve if I'm never going to be able to play piano again. Actually, I do. The Lord healed me throughout a few years, uh, through a process of years. But um, so I just, I had so much to deal with and I, it was heavy. I was looking at losing my major, having to change, change my um, degree into a different kind and like all these things. And, and the pain was just a lot. So I, and I felt disconnected from my, from my world because mm. I couldn't go anywhere. So uh, at one, one night I did invite a couple of my friends, my closest friends, two of them over to spend the evening with me. They had to come to me because I couldn't drive or do anything at that point yet. And um, we sat there and the whole evening. I felt like I was like expressing so loudly. I felt that I need help. I'm not doing okay. And um, they just, Eventually the evening was over, they got up, they left. And that night I attempted suicide. And the difficult thing was when this was all over, I talked to them and I said, like I was trying to ask for help. They said, like, you said nothing. Mm -hmm. We didn't hear you say that you were mm -hmm. sad or that you were depressed or that you were struggling or grieving. And I like replayed that conversation in my mind and the the thing was, I didn't know how to be vulnerable. I did not know how to say I'm not doing good mm. or I'm sad. I, like I didn't know how. And I realized that my lack of vulnerability actually was my problem. They wanted to help me. It wasn't that they didn't care, but I didn't know how to communicate that. So that began my journey on learning how to be vulnerable, how to express my emotions and how to ask for help and say, Hey, like, I feel like I need a friend. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so that journey began in my, in, in my early twenties, I didn't do, I didn't learn well. What I should have done is hired a counselor or a coach and they should have done something. <laughs> but I didn't even know that was a thing back then, you yeah. know, yeah. that's how that started. And then eventually I had some really strong women in my life who were able to say like, hey, this is not how we do friendship. And I'd be like, oh, oh, really? And so growing in vulnerability, because an eight is very good at being transparent and showing you all the parts of their life, being super honest. So it seems like we're being vulnerable, but we're not. Mm. And, um, and I think that's what I didn't understand is that just talking about the things does not actually mean I'm being vulnerable about the things. Yeah, because it's more factual and being that open book and transparent in here I am so what how did the language change from just being able to tell someone something in relationships to that bridge of I need help I'm not doing good 
Uh, can you sit and talk with me? How did that change over the course of your 20s and, and beyond? Well, I was very not good at it in my in my 20s. <laughs> I have to be honest. I would probably at that stage, I was probably asking for more like, uh, can we hang out together? Can we do stuff? Much more activity based. I'm an eight wing seven. So I'm much more action based. So doing things together would have been my way of saying, I need you, mm. uh, which was very different from my childhood where I had connect, I had just disconnected from people and really lived as five um, and had no friends. And I, I, I didn't need people. I thought I didn't need people. And I thought it was my five that was saying, I don't need people. But really what it was is my eight saying, I don't want anyone else to control me. Yeah. And so as I, as I got into, you know, I got married, I started raising my, my family. Um, even being able to give my children words, I began to realize, oh, I don't use these words. Mm. I need to be able to say these words. If they're saying them, I need to model this. And being able, and you know, what we did, we went for marriage counseling. I've, I've been through other counseling since then. And learning from people who can teach me, oh, this is how you say that. And, but even before that, I had to, I had to understand what I was feeling because yeah. as an eight, I don't want to know what I'm feeling. Who cares? Just like push it away. Right. Um, let's move on. Right. Come on. There are things to do. That's right. Future um, focus. So, not nothing's in our way. <laughs> <laughs> let's not sit here and talk about how we feel. Uh, 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 uh. So getting, to, getting in touch with my body, knowing, oh, they, this is my gut is feeling tight. Why is my gut feeling tight? Oh, well, because I've been thinking about this. Well, that thought makes me feel this emotion. And following that path to say, oh, okay, so I'm actually very concerned about the situation or, you know, feeling anxious about this particular decision I have to make. And really making the decision to learn how is my body and my mind connected to my heart? How am I going to put words to that? So yeah, I was the, I was the crazy lady who would pull out a, a feelings chart because I'm like, I don't know what the words are because I only have three of them. Yeah. Happy, sad, mad. Yeah. You know? Oh my gosh. So That's actually I just a great idea for people, no matter what your type is, but maybe those that need a little bit more guidance with saying what they're feeling of having a feeling chart. I remember looking at one going through coaching myself and I'm a four, so I should be able to have all these words. And I'm like, <gasps> I knew all these words existed, but not in the same category of disappointment or not the same place of joy or whatever. And I was like, oh my gosh, obviously the ones that speak to you are probably the ones that we're feeling or guiding us closer to what the actual thing that we're feeling is or what we're concerned about, whatever. So that's very, very helpful to be like, it is okay to pause for just a second, check in with yourself because you are in the gut triad. So you have that instinct of feeling something in your body and then trusting that your body is leading you to something that ultimately is going to inform and then help and then get you to move on and go where you need to go. It is that pausing that's just hard. <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, I made, I wrote a, I wrote a little workbook, a little book called Focus on Feelings, exactly for people like this, like myself, that asks the question, when I feel this emotion, where do I feel it in my body? What does it feel like? When I think this thought, how do I feel that in my body? And it's it's not as complicated as a as a feelings wheel. It's much more simple, but it's a workbook that I use with many of my coaching clients because the truth of the matter is, even as a society, 
uh, like you're mentioning as a type four, those, those words are good. We don't use accurate words to describe our emotions. And what this creates is conflict in relationship. It creates so much miscommunication. And if we could just clarify what that emotion is, oh my goodness, we would like fix things so much more quickly. Amen to that. That is so good. So using that workbook with your clients, how have you seen that transform them and also transform you at the same time being an eight, having to kind of go through practice what you're preaching, right? And then watching the light bulb go off for other people of like, oh, this is what it is to take that time to really focus on what it is that we are feeling, experiencing, and then being able to move forward. So how have you been impacted by that? Oh, I think it's amazing. The more I see, the more I see the aha moments in my clients and the more I see the life change that happens when they begin to do this, the more I'm excited about my own mm. and the more willing I am to not just do it for myself. Cause as a coach, I, I could do it for me in my, like my, my, the privacy of my own head, my mind, my, my own little world, but to be able to use this with my children, my grandchildren, my husband, being able to do this in like action life, you know, uh, that's been super cool. Cause I can also say I've done this and therefore I know it works Yeah, because I'm living this, you know, I'm the, I'm the gut personality type eight that is going to refuse to go to these emotions. Right. But, um, being able to do it, I've learned that actually being vulnerable is not nearly as scary as I thought it was. Mm. And it actually brings a level of joy and satisfaction and completion in relationships because my interactions with people are more genuine. They're more authentic, not just honest, they're authentic. And it allows them to be more authentic with me. And that actually brings a depth of relationship that as a, as a type eight feels safer and less likely to be betrayed. Oh, wow. So it's, all around a much healthier place to be. That is phenomenal. Thank you for sharing that. That's so good. And it is so helpful to hear that because as fours and eights, depends on who you talk to and how they're feeling or not feeling about things. It could be said that we're the most two misunderstood types and talking to you, I'm able to see so clearly how from an, uh, a female eights perspective that can be. And I'm not here to say one is more than the other. It, it really depends, but I think they can both be vying for first place. Yes. Not that there's not, as long as our national anthem gets played as a podium finish, we're good. But <laughs> um, just being able to, to see that it's a very extroverted versus introverted kind of way of, of dealing with. So you're very future focused. Let's move past this. Let's just get over that little speed bump. And we're like, no, there is a speed bump that actually is a giant wall. We're going to pause for a very long time. We're going to sit with it. We're going to go back to the past and be like, where has this found its way in the pattern of our life? But even just really recognizing that emotions are good and we need them. And I love what you said about the miscommunication of if we learned the words and if we were more in tune because our emotions are telling us something that we need mm -hmm. to know for the betterment of ourselves, for the betterment of the people that we're in community with. So I absolutely love that. And good for you for making a workbook, share it with the world. It's Thank a beautiful you. thing. <laughs> beautiful thing. So I would love to go back to type eight females in relationships in the church. So how has that been for you over your faith journey? That's a good question. So like I said, I was, um, I didn't realize I somehow missed the memo that, you know, 13 year old girls should not stand up and challenge a board full of male deacons. <laughs> 
I realized later that was not, uh, that wasn't like, to me, it was a simple matter of this is my faith and this is what I'm going to stand for. This wasn't about being insubordinate. There was nothing in me that felt rebellious. Um, I was just going to say my piece. As I grew up, I realized I began to get that sort of that hidden underlying message, you know, you know, you hear a sermon preached about women who need to be quiet and submissive in the church and they need to be gentle and soft-spoken. And I'm like, what? Like, how do you do that? I like, I can maybe do it for 10 minutes, but get me going. Let me talk about something I'm excited about and I'm not quiet anymore. And right, like, right. so, it, so I just, I didn't understand. And for a long time, honestly, I felt wrong. I felt like somehow God made me wrong. I was brought up wrong. There was something wrong with me that I had, I had ideas and I had, I had questions and I wanted to challenge the status quo. And I wanted, I wanted to discuss theology. I love theology. I would consider myself a theologian because I love to study it. And, um, but that was, that was reserved for the men, you know, behind closed doors. And so to be a woman that has this passion, desire to learn and then, and then to teach what I've learned, because this is amazing as I'm studying scripture, but then have no place to share it because a woman in the church, I'm only allowed to teach in Sunday school or certainly not adults. Right. So, so I can't do anything with this. And I, I, you know, I felt squelched for a long time. I did end up in a church. Uh, in one of the places that we lived where I was often invited to speak from the pulpit and and I felt valued. I felt like my opinion mattered and I felt like like I've never wanted I've never, you know, aspired to be a pastor of a church. That's not my thing. But but I have a message. I do feel called to preach and teach. But there's many places where that's not welcome. And, um, you know, men are intimidated. And yet at the same time, I am married to a type two who interestingly was a pastor for a certain time and would say that as a type two, he doesn't have the skills and the passion for preaching that many women Mm. did. And he's like, well, why are you hiring a man to do the job just because they're a man when a woman can, can deliver that, you know, now we could go into the roles of women and, and I have opinions on that and everyone else has their own opinions. But I think that the gift of preaching and teaching itself is not, um, I don't think God holds that away from any woman. Uh, but being a, a woman with the gift and then doing that with a with a powerful personality is very intimidating for men. And mm. I understand that there's an assumed leadership role that people assume that I want because I have vision and I, I'm a quick decision maker. I can see the plan and I can carry out the plan. So people assume that I want to be the leader. I don't. But I do maybe want to have my say. I do want to be able to point out what I know, my experience. At my age, I'm a grandma. I've got a little bit behind my, you know, I'm I, like, I've got some weight behind this. I've learned a few things. Yes. Um, yes. But just because I'm a woman, uh, it's like, oh, she wants to take over. No, I don't. But I do have things I want to share. And one of the gifts I do have is to inspire congregations and audiences. And when I speak at retreats or I speak at conferences, uh, that's what comes back is I was inspired. I was motivated and I'm excited about this. And I have a way of teaching that can break things down into simple pieces. so People can understand it and grapple with it and take it for their own and run with it. And that's what I love. I'm an empowerer. I'm an inspirer. But 
in the church, uh, men often see that and go, oh, she's going to, she's going to want to run the church. No, I don't. Yeah. I just have a passion for something God's laid on my heart. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Let's, uh, let's geek out about theology for just a little bit. Cause we have time. All to right do then. So what, do, what gets your goat or what, what is the one or a couple of things that you're just like, let's, let's hash this out. What, what's going on with this? Oh goodness. This is a, this is not a five minute conversation. You're <laughs> me into a corner. I think that, I think the whole, like, I, I do believe there are definite roles for men and women, but when it calls to gifting, you know, whether that's preaching, teaching, gifts of the spirit, at no point, at no point does a scripture ever say this specific set of gifts is for men and this specific set of gifts is for women. And so to say that women, and, and I think that most evangelicals would say, yes, that you can have, uh, that men and women are equally, in, you know, given and empowered with these gifts. But then the problem is, then the Western church says, However, we're not going to allow these specific sets of gift to be used in the church because we don't trust women in this capacity. Yeah. And, um, and there are verses that I think that need to really be reexamined about what they actually mean culturally, what was the intention of them. Um, we have to really take a look at the whole of scripture, not just pick and choose one or two that fit our ideology. Um, I absolutely think there is a place for um, men only, women only, whether that's in the family, whether it's in the church. But when it comes to the gift of the spirit and what he has equipped the church with, pastors, teachers, apostles, evangelists, uh, shepherds, like that's that's not gender exclusive. That's no. gender inclusive. And I am happy to receive the gifts that God gives me. I struggle with the churches that don't allow me to use them. That's good right there. How do you see both sides working together in your opinion of being able to recognize that the gifts are not gender exclusive, but inclusive? And what, what does that look like to you? What is your vision of how that can all marry together? Oh, that's a good question. I, I think that it's, it comes down to, we need to be relinquishing uh, our ideas be willing to applaud and congratulate and empower all the people around us in their differences as well as in our similarities. There's not just one good preacher. There's not good one good teacher. Um, there's not just one good server or or giver. It, it, there's so many. We need everyone. And if we could stop arguing about oh it has to be this or it has to be this or, but really em encouraging one another. I mean, I think it's always healthy that a church has more than one person that speaks in the pulpit. Um, but I think also we're in a day and age where uh, we have the internet. We have all kinds of different ways to get information. And to be able to um, encourage one another in the use of our gifts, maybe outside of the traditional norm of the church, maybe outside of the traditional methods of teaching that we're used to, certain curriculums, maybe we need to broaden that and you know, get, in, get in tune with where the people are that want to hear what God is laying on our heart. It might not be anymore in my congregation. Maybe it's out there in the world somewhere that's going to log into a YouTube channel or my social media and then encouraging one another. I, I used to have a very small thought about 
like my, I should say it wasn't a small thought. My thought about the world is that it was so small. Like if someone's preaching about, uh, I don't know, you know, death, let's say, or, or death in heaven, let's say dying in heaven, that that one person could reach all the people that would have questions about that. This world is huge. We can actually have like thousands of people talking about that and we wouldn't reach everybody that has questions. So we, we need to encourage everyone else that's doing something similar and whether they're male, whether they're female, we need to have this, we are the body of Christ and we need all the parts. Right back, this body has way more parts than a normal body. So we need to be so able true. to encourage all the parts, you know, and yeah. be okay with that. Be okay with other people succeeding. And their success, depending on how you're measuring it, may look very different than ours. Uh, and that's okay. And yeah. maybe it's in the church and maybe it's in the body of Christ, you know, the large church, capital C. Right. Yeah. Right. That's so good. That is so good. So Carla Ann, what would be your encouragement for folks who are new to the Enneagram or in it for a while and are in relationship with an eight? Maybe they now know their type and they know that they're not an eight, but they know someone in their circle who is. So what would your encouragement be for our friends? First of all, it's okay to like them. (laughs) They're fun. They're wonderful. (laughs) You don't have to be afraid of your eight. Uh, just when you, when you, this is what I would say, like a couple of things, you know, if you're eight that you're love, that you love, or that you're in relationship with or that, you know, at work or at at school or at church, your eight is getting like intense in questions and they're questioning things and they're challenging things. That means they feel safe enough with you to show that part because Mm -hmm. that eight is not going to put it out there if they think you're going to trample over them. So if they are you know, attacking you with questions or challenging your ideas, step back and say to yourself, okay, this is not what I'm used to. This feels really intense and really strong, uh, but they're not against me. This is their way of inviting me into their world and showing me their heart and passion. So if you can have that perspective of your type eight, that's going to go a long way. And remembering that Eights are passionate about everything. So if there is something to be talked about or enjoyed or experienced, the eight will be passionate about it. So if that passion comes out in a loud tone of voice or large hand motions in the very demonstrative and the way they speak and the way they walk and they may like pound into the house, they're not angry. They're not angry. This is their passion showing up. And one thing that's very difficult for an eight to hear is why are you so angry? I'm not angry. So if you can just take a step back for your type eight and go, oh, wow, I see your passion. Right now, your passion is overwhelming my two or my nine. Uh, So I'm going to go and just take a minute and then I'm going to come back so I can enjoy your passion is way better than saying, why are you so mad? Right. So just evaluating that passion and being able to say your passion's a bit much for me right now that we can understand because now you have acknowledged that we have something we're on fire about and we value that so that's what I would say that is so good and that right there has completely transformed how I see it's in the world thank you they're just more physical about showing and explaining um, and that's nothing to be 
um, afraid of. So thank you for that. That is you're welcome. That is a treat. <laughs> Put it on a t-shirt. Eights are exactly. not angry all the time. We're just passionate. Full on Sweet passion. Banana. All caps. Bold. All the exclamation points. Passionate. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, I want to talk about what you're reading or what is your favorite. I know I asked you this before. Can you tell me a little bit about the book Being Mortal? I'm so interested to hear about it. Okay. That's an interesting book. Um, my husband and I have been married for one year, but he just a few months ago, he was diagnosed uh, mm. with brain cancers and he has, uh, he has already exceeded his uh, life expectancy. So we began reading this book, Being Mortal. What does it mean? And like I said, my husband's a type two and I'm a type eight. So I want to like grab a hold of the situation and let's just attack it. Let's let's cure this cancer. Let's deal with all of this. And and he, on the other hand, is, is a type two. And he's like, how do I help all the people in the world around me? How do I help them deal with my issues? How do I help them deal with my cancer? And so learning how to, he's wanting to pull back and slow down and be in the moment, maybe even in the past, because he goes to four. And I'm like, let's go forward and let's make this happen. And so being mortal asks the question, how do we how do we live well in our waning years, whether that's because of health or age? How do we live? What does life really look like? Does it look like um, always curing everything? Maybe curing it's not the answer. Maybe we need to actually make sure quality of life is much more present than quantity of life. And that, so to me, being mortal has really allowed me um, to open up and say, okay, so maybe we're not going to rush ahead and do all the surgeries and all the treatments that are possible. Maybe what we need to do is slow down and take time, acknowledge that death is part of life. Death is part of life, whether that's now because of cancer or when we get old, death is part of life. So now I need to slow down and enjoy this life with my husband being in the moment right now. And it, it gives us a really healthy and beautiful perspective. It's a great book to read because it's lots of stories, story, story, story. So it's an easy read. And um, it may not align with everyone's uh, religious beliefs necessarily, but it's certainly a good perspective on what is life and what do I want out of it mm, before I die. That is so good. Thank you for sharing that. What a beautiful, you're welcome. Beautiful story of you and your husband. And then just really practical of, yeah, I mean, that, that is coming for everyone, whether it is age, like you said, or, or health. And again, as a society, we could do a tiny bit better in Western culture, preparing for it and not having so much fear. Um, those who have faith have maybe a little bit less fear then maybe those who do not share in the idea of going to heaven or going to an eternal paradise or, or whatever. Um, so that's really good. That's very good. Is there anything that we have not said that you would like to? I would say if you get a chance to learn the Enneagram of the people that you love, people in your family, do yourself the service of learning that as quickly as possible. And if you're an eight, embrace the emotion and the vulnerability, because in the end, it will feel so good. Mm, I love that. Carla Ann, thank you so much for being here. I cannot wait to have you back and talk more theology and passion and everything. Thank you so much. Let's do it. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening. It would mean the world if you would follow this podcast, rate it, and review it for others to see so they can begin their own journey and understanding that their story matters. Did you know I'm also an Enneagram coach? To learn more about how it can have a lasting impact on your story, head on over to my website, MichaelaElizabeth.com, or send me a message. I cannot wait to connect with you.